go. All right. Yay, technology. <laughs> Let's try this one more time. My name's Laura, as Matt said, and uh, I have been learning how we preach here in the Anglican tradition. I have preached before, but it was with like 30 of my closest friends, so it's a little bit of a switch. A lot of you have heard me say that we go to church at Hogwarts. <laughs> For those of you that don't know what that means, um, Harry Potter has been a very famous movie series and popular book series for a number of years. I'm a little bit obsessed, so you'll hear me make a couple Harry Potter references this morning. Feel free to come bother me about them afterwards. I'll explain. Um, part of why I say that is my very first Sunday here, I left in the middle of service, went to the bathroom, and could not find my way back. I was convinced that the staircase had moved. <laughs> so, as we dive into our good news proclamation this morning and, and look at what Jesus has to say to us, uh, just keep in mind that, you know, it's okay to get a little lost in the middle of all of this. That's, there's a lot happening. Church, Jesus comes to us to manifest God's saving presence and establish a subversive empire of collective flourishing. We're called to leave our nets and join this revolution. In our gospel passage today, we see Jesus beginning to call some fisher folk to leave their nets, which were their jobs and their livelihoods and everything they kind of knew how to do, and their families. Two of our, our fisher folk were with their dad that's mentioned like four times in half a sentence. So clearly this is important. And they're called to leave both of these things that are a core part of sort of who they are and how they do life and follow Jesus. This had to have been a little backwards and upside down and a little bit of, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> They'd likely heard of Jesus, maybe even seen him somewhere in Galilee or heard him preach, but they didn't really know who he was. And all of a sudden there he is standing in front of him going, come on, let's go. And they're like, I'm sorry, what are you doing? What are you asking me to do? There's a number of reasons that this was strange and surprising and probably pretty confusing to them. Fisher folk in this time were outcasts in many ways. First of all, they were citizens of an occupied country. The Romans had come in, taken over, and really oppressed the Jews and made them, in essence, indentured servants in a number of ways. Also, their fellow Jews would look at them and say, you're working in this industry that the Romans control. You're kind of working for the man. There's a little side eye going on there. They might not have felt fully accepted. The Romans actually controlled the fishing industry to such an extent that there was licensing that had to be um, gained in order to be a fisherman. There was taxation on what you caught. There were quotas of how much you had to give to the Romans. They even established authority over bodies of water, which I didn't really think was possible, but there is a law that you can see in uh, the historical books that indicates this. So the disciples would have been sort of looked at by their fellow Jews as kind of working for the enemy. Um, so they're doubly rejected. They don't really fit anywhere. And one other element to this is that at this time, rabbis who were teachers in the church and religious leaders would choose certain people to be part of their inner circle, their students, their disciples, and follow them. Fisher folk would have known in advance. They weren't getting their Hogwarts letter. There was no way this rabbi was going to come call them because they were kind of outcasts. So it was one more way that they were rejected and, and had kind of missed out on fitting in with the rest of their community. 
So then here comes this guy who's just appeared on the scene and is kind of famous, but they don't really know who he is, calling them into something new and giving them maybe a chance to belong. So each of those elements we just looked at points us right back to the good news. Jesus comes to manifest God's saving presence, establish this weird, backward, subversive empire of collective flourishing. Like the fisher folk, we're called to leave our nets, these things we're familiar with, and join this revolution that we have, don't really understand. So as a somewhat sort of older single woman in the church, this good news hits home for me in kind of an unusual and significant way. It surprised me a little bit. The church culture and tradition I grew up in really kind of considered single women as confusing. They didn't know what to do with us. Often we were inferior. And let me take a second here and just say that when I'm talking about being a single woman, I've never been married. I'm not widowed or divorced. There's unique things about that that are not the same as my experience. I really never felt like I, especially once I got past 25, it was like I didn't really have a natural place. I'm not a wife. I'm not a mom. I'm not widowed. I'm not, I don't, there's no box to check that I fit into. I had friends who would sometimes say, well, yeah, we didn't invite you over for our movie night with the kids because we thought you'd be at the club with your friends. (laughs) I'm sorry, have we met? (laughs) I didn't go to the club when I was 25. Why would I go when I'm 40? Like, what? Who are you? (laughs) And so that was always a little bit like, wait, you're my friend, you know me, what, what? (laughs) Um, in In a more challenging and somewhat painful way, when I would go to a church leader and say, hey, I, I want to be involved, I want to serve, here's some things I know that I'm gifted in, almost immediately every time the response was, oh, the women's ministry, or oh, the nursery, now, let's be real. If you've met me, you know I love kids. <laughs> I gravitate to the toddlers like a magnet, but that's not my gifting. That's not how I feel called in the ministry. So here I was with this, these sets of gifts that I didn't have anywhere to put. I felt invisible. I felt dismissed, doubly rejected for my status as a single person and as a woman. The end result of this was that over three decades or so of being an adult and single and female in the church, I started to feel used and simultaneously invisible, as though I'd missed something somewhere and just didn't fit no matter what I did. I had my cart. I had my owl on top of my cart. I couldn't find the entrance to platform nine and three quarters. I kept running into pillars and damaging myself because they wouldn't open up for me. And that's funny, but it was painful. The pain of feeling so invisible turned me into a skeptic. I stopped seeking out relationship in the church. I chose to be alone, to live alone, to, you know, be comfortable with myself. And there was a journey in that of getting to know myself and being comfortable with who I was and understanding myself as a whole and complete person, but I was still alone. I was lonely, but at least I was invisible by choice. Kind of like these fisher folk might have thought, okay, maybe we're rejected by most people, but at least we can feed our families. Our neighbors over here who aren't fishing don't have enough food. 
So if, as our good news says, that Jesus comes to manifest God's saving presence and establish a subversive empire of collective flourishing, how do we answer this call to leave our nets? What does that actually mean? What did it really mean for the fisher folk, the women, the tax collectors, who, by the way, were all second-class citizens, to become part of Jesus' inner circle, to join him in this revolution of creating this completely bleepity-backwards empire, community. Let's look a little deeper at this upside-down world that Jesus was establishing. What's so rebellious and revolutionary about it? We talked a little bit earlier about rabbis and how they chose followers. Well, unlike that, Jesus' call wasn't and isn't based on wealth, status, gender, training, any of those things. Like I spoke about, besides the fisher folk, the call went out to women, like Mary Magdalene, who was a tax collector. You guys okay? Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry, Mary Magdalene was not a tax collector. She was a prostitute. <laughs> Got a little distracted. Um, whew, that would have really been subversive. My goodness. Um, Jesus rescued her from being stoned. He healed her, and then he invited her into his inner circle. It wasn't, oh, you're still sort of this second-class citizen. I've healed you, and you're okay now, but you can't really be part of things. It was, no, I'm going to heal you, and then you're going to be fully embraced and collectively flourish. This was, in so many ways, for the women, the fisher folk, the tax collectors, all of these other folks that became followers of Jesus, backwards. Like, it had to have been, both cognitively and emotionally, really difficult to be like, wait, is this really, what is this? And also, the Jewish community, the Roman leaders, all would have looked at this and gone, okay, we have no idea what you're doing, and either dismissed him or, as we see, it became a threat. Another aspect of this is that Jesus called these people not to do something in particular or serve him in some way, although that does become an outpouring of what happens, but he calls them to be transformed. Everyone from the fisher folk to the rich young ruler to the ten lepers that he healed to the Samaritan woman were called to transform and to allow him to change who they were, to join this collective flourishing that way. There was some action in, inherent in Jesus' call. They needed to embrace this call to be transformed. But it wasn't about some task some checklist that they had to follow. This is a contrast to what the Roman and Jewish leaders would have been attempting to establish. For them, it was a zero-sum game. If I'm flourishing, you're not. There's no way we can have both. Even in this Pax Romana that the Romans were bringing, the peace of Rome, they had this thought that, like, we're going to make everything better which might sound kind of familiar to somewhere else that we live. And it didn't. It still became the zero-sum game. We're flourishing, you're not. However, in this alternate reality Jesus is establishing, there's no haves and have-nots. There's no colonizers and colonized. There's no powerful and powerless. That sounds pretty attractive, right? Maybe it's utopia. Maybe it's, you know, this is really cool. I kind of like this idea. 
But as attractive as that sounds in theory, in reality, the people we're seeing here had nets they had to leave in order to join this revolution. The rich young ruler's wealth, the religious leader's power, the Samaritan woman's livelihood and perception of herself. All of these had to be put aside, walked away from, and left altogether in order for this alternate community to become real. So again, beloved, Jesus comes to manifest God's saving presence and establish the subversive empire of collective flourishing. But we have to leave our nets and join the revolution in order for this to be real. So what holds us back? The idea of joining a revolution, even in my mind, kind of sounds like, does that even really apply today? What's getting in my way? What's getting in our way of actively leaving nets, of leaving things behind? Maybe you're also single, like me, and you felt dismissed or invisible in your community in some way. Maybe you've been hurt by people in power, by church leaders, by the way the world's view of flourishing causes some to flourish and others not to. Maybe it's a huge struggle to be vulnerable and trust when you've been hurt in other ways. Maybe it's hard to imagine that real community is possible and that past hurts won't be repeated. Mallory pointed out to me when we were processing through this that there's a section of that Tobit passage that actually gives us this really good visual of what kind of the practical or the almost the reality of this could look like, where it says, blessed are those who love you and rejoice in your well-being. Blessed also are all people who grieve with you because of all your afflictions. Notice it doesn't say they pat you on the head and patronize you. They grieve with you. That's collective flourishing. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. Grieving with those who grieve. Now real talk, it's still challenging for me to trust that this alternative community, even this little microcosm of it here at the table, is is real. Am I truly embraced for my personhood and not dismissed for my status? Is this really happening? Can I really trust these people that have shown love and care and grace and this <laughs> to me? While I have moved cautiously into trusting that that collective flourishing is possible and real, I got to say that I am standing here proclaiming good news to you almost as surprising to me as Jesus' call must have been to Peter and Andrew and James and John. Again, you want me to do what? Exactly. (laughs) Excuse me. I am learning to leave behind my self-protective isolation, my skepticism, and my fear, and join the revolution. In embracing this transformation, I am consistently reminded that Jesus comes to manifest God's saving presence and establish a subversive empire of collective flourishing. Come with me, leave your nets, join the revolution. Beloved, as we come to the table this morning, take a second and take a breath. Reflect, absorb. What does this collective flourishing look like for you, for your family, for our specific community at the table? As our church is experiencing some ongoing change, 
or embracing a new way of life together in the Episcopal Church, how can we embrace God's call to this alternate reality, to this revolution? What nets is Jesus asking you to leave? Remember, friends, Jesus is calling you to be transformed, to be embraced for all of who you are, and to share in his collective flourishing, even as you're a part of creating it. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.